0: Hello, and welcome to Checkpoint Now, the podcast at the intersection of immunotherapy and toxicities. This is your host, Dr. Afreen Sharif, endocrinologist and assistant professor of medicine, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Tian Zhang, urinary oncologist and assistant professor of medicine. We both practice at Duke University Hospital.
1: Before we begin today's discussion, just a reminder that the content discussed in this podcast is not a substitute for direct professional medical care and diagnosis. The opinions expressed here represent our own. Today, our focus is to discuss immune hypophysitis, how it's diagnosed, triaged, and treated with a focus on secondary adrenal insufficiency that can occur as a result. So Afreen, immune hypophysitis is one of the more challenging adverse events to diagnose. From my understanding, the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors has made a rare disease more common. Can you tell us about classic immune hypophysitis and the difference between this and checkpoint inhibitor-related immune hypophysitis?
0: Sure. Prior to the development and widespread use of these agents, immune hypophysitis was a relatively rare condition. The presentation of immune checkpoint-associated immune hypophysitis challenges the historic understanding of what we call classic immune hypophysitis in many ways. Classic immune hypophysitis is a rare diagnosis reported in one in seven to nine million patients and commonly seen in females in the post-peripartum period, often presenting acutely with headache and vision changes. Now, in contrast, checkpoint-associated immune hypophysitis is seen more commonly in males than females. So even though the disease is the same, The flavor of presentation is different from classic immune hypophysitis.
1: That's really interesting. It it seems like headache and fatigue are actually commonly noted in patients with immune checkpoint inhibitor-induced immune hypophysitis, while vision changes are not a common presentation. What are the common presenting symptoms that you see, Afrine, and when should oncologists and endocrinologists be suspicious of immune hypophysitis? As observed from a large um, clinical practice and reported cases,
0: early clinical signs of immune hypophysitis are not specific and reported as a decline in functional status, weight loss, poor appetite, which are not uncommon in the oncology population and often not considered an alarming change. So this is something that comes as a big concern with diagnosing immune hypophysitis. Now, more specific symptoms include headache and vision changes, which can indicate a rapidly
1: enlarging pituitary gland. And how common and how soon can we see immune hypophysitis from immune checkpoint inhibitors? The median time
0: of occurrence depends on the agent use. Onset is earlier and between 4 weeks and 19 weeks after patients are started on anti-CDLA-4 agents compared to those treated with PD-1 or pdl one inhibitors.
1: Is there a difference between CTLA4 and PD1 or PDL1 inhibitors in regards to onset and incidence of immune hypophysitis? Yes, there is.
0: Just as there are differences seen in other toxicities from CTLA4 inhibitors and PD1 inhibitors, based on a meta-analysis of 7,500 plus patients that included 38 randomized controlled trials, immune hypophysitis was reported in 3.3% patients treated with anti-CTLA-4 antibodies and 0.4% individuals treated with PD-1 inhibitors. When patients received a combination of the two agents, the overall incidence of immune hypophysitis increased to 6.6%. And
1: why do you think there's such a difference between the two agents?
0: The association of higher incidence of checkpoint-associated immune hypophysitis with anti-CTLA-4 antibodies can be attributed to multiple mechanisms among which the most con- convincing one is the ectopic expression of CTLA-4 protein on the surface of anterior pituitary cells, specifically prolactin and TSH-producing cells, which attract the attention of anti-CTLA-4 antibodies. This association results in activation of complement and antibody-dependent cell-mediated
1: cytotoxicity, which ultimately results in the inflammation of the pituitary gland. So why do some and not all patients treated with CTLA-4 inhibitors develop immune hypophysitis? That's a great question. Even I have always wondered about this.
0: And it turns out that the association is not as simple as I mentioned earlier. It's complex and there is variable expression of CTLA-4 proteins on the pituitary cells, which may explain why some individuals are more likely to develop immune hypophysitis when exposed to these agents. The mechanism for PD-1 and PDL one inhibitor-associated immune hypophysitis is, is unclear at this time.
1: So with all these variable and nonspecific complaints, it doesn't seem easy to diagnose immune hypophysitis. I agree. It's not always black and white with immune hypophysitis, and
0: hence a high degree of suspicion should be maintained when you hear your patients talk about a change in functional status due to fatigue and new onset headache if reported between visits. These can be the early signs of evolving immune hypophysitis. Vision changes when present are
1: important and serve as a pivoting point in deciding treatment and imaging. The prescribing information for ipilimumab clearly defines routine lab evaluation to screen for immune-related adverse events before every treatment. Among other labs, isolated ACTH and thyroid function tests are recommended before each infusion. However, in practice, and even in my own, thyroid function tests are ordered before every cycle, but an ACTH or cortisol level is not commonly done. Can you explain why? There may be a few reasons to explain this. Poor
0: understanding of the appropriate timing and way of getting ACTH and cortisol, I see is one of the more common reasons why there is considerable hesitance around ordering these labs. An ACTH level done independent of a cortisol level may not be useful to establish a diagnosis. An ACTH collected during the day and not at 8 a.m. can result in falsely low values and raise false alarms. Another issue I commonly see is in patients on steroids or intermittent steroids, which can lower ACTH and cortisol levels. Depending on the dose, duration, and interval between the labs and administered steroids, these can affect your ACTH levels.
1: Since we get more thyroid labs, can these serve as cues to a diagnosis of immune hypophysitis? Yes, sometimes it is useful. In a retrospective cohort
0: study, including 78 ipilimumab-treated patients, an isolated fall in TSH by 80% was predictive for immune hypophysitis. This change was noted at a median time of 9.2 weeks after initiating treatment with ipilimumab and a median of 3.6 weeks before the diagnosis of immune hypophysitis. Lab findings that are consistent with secondary hypothyroidism include a low free T4 value associated with either an inappropriately normal or low TSH. These findings in patients treated with checkpoint inhibitors can prompt further evaluation for other pituitary
1: hormone deficiencies. Great. Now let's talk about imaging of the pituitary gland and is it really important to obtain a pituitary specific MRI or is a brain MRI equally useful? A pituitary
0: MRI has imaging advantages to routine brain MRIs when diagnosing checkpoint associated immune hypophysitis. In comparison to a routine brain MRI, pituitary MRIs include dedicated coronal and sagittal views of the pituitary gland, slices Thickness of one point five to three millimeters, compared to five millimeters, which is usually a standard for a brain MRI. A pituitary-directed MRI helps capture subtle abnormalities like change in pituitary height, which is one of the more common findings noted in checkpoint-associated immune hypophysitis. In contrast, a routine brain MRI can be useful to determine other causes of pituitary dysfunction, including metastatic disease or primary diseases of the pituitary gland.
1: That's really helpful, Efreen. Can pituitary MRIs be useful to predict immune hypophysitis?
0: When clinical suspicion is high, imaging findings have been noted to precede biochemical diagnosis of immune hypophysitis in a small retrospective cohort study of 17 patients where eight patients had MRI findings that are consistent with immune hypophysitis
1: one week prior to the diagnosis. So the answer is yes, but data is evolving. And should we repeat MRIs in our patients once they're diagnosed to ensure resolution of their imaging findings? In my opinion, it's not useful after clinical
0: improvement and adequate hormone replacement. A decision to repeat pituitary MRIs after initial diagnosis should be reserved for patients with continued symptoms of headache and vision changes despite adequate treatment since imaging findings almost always resolve after adequate treatment. The persistence of symptoms and imaging findings can help clinicians
1: determine the need for increased duration of high-dose steroids. What do you think we're missing as oncologists when managing patients with immune hypophysitis? I'm glad you asked this question. Accurate data acquisition before initiating
0: glucocorticoids is a very common misstep in management of especially secondary adrenal insufficiency from immune hypophysitis. This is not a concern with hormone replacement with secondary hypothyroidism, where levothyroxine is the treatment of choice. When a patient is suspected of having adrenal insufficiency from immune hypophysitis, the reflex is to start steroids. In situations where glucocorticoids are initiated without the recommended evaluation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, long-term management becomes complex.
1: Can you explain how starting glucocorticoids without a clear diagnosis complicates the long-term management for secondary adrenal insufficiency? Absolutely. Once glucocorticoids are started,
0: the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis cannot be reliably evaluated until glucocorticoids are completely stopped. This requires weeks of gradually reducing steroid doses and re-challenging the HPA axis with a cosyntropin stimulation test. Hence, when a patient is clinically stable and not in an adrenal crisis, I would strongly recommend that the HPA axis be evaluated ideally with a morning cortisol and ACTH followed by a cosyntropin stimulation test. Now, if your patient is not stable, glucocorticoid should be started without waiting for testing or results, especially in a life-threatening situation.
1: Efreen, one thing I often have doubts about is whether to give patients replacement or high-dose steroids. How do we figure that out?
0: This is probably the most common dilemma encountered by oncologists. Let me explain what we mean first with high dose and replacement steroids. High dose steroids would be prednisone one milligram per kilogram per day and replacement dose of steroids would be prednisone seven and a half to 10 milligrams or hydrocortisone 15 to 25 milligrams per day. The difference in opinion on management stems from the evolution of experience and recommendations with managing immune hypophysitis. In earlier studies and clinical trials that included patients with metastatic melanoma, high-dose glucocorticoids was recommended. This practice has been challenged by the findings of smaller studies, including one where 25 patients were randomly assigned to separate groups and one group with immune hypophysitis received high-dose steroids, the second group received replacement glucocorticoids. It was noted that there was no difference in the time to resolution of pituitary deficiencies or change in the outcome of immune hypophysitis between the groups additionally when 98 patients with ipilimumab induced immune hypophysitis were treated with replacement or high dose glucocorticoids the group treated with replacement doses of glucocorticoids had a higher overall survival and time to treatment failure compared to those treated with high dose glucocorticoids as experience in management of immune hypophysitis has evolved The management recommendations have shifted to replacement glucocorticoids if there is no concern for symptoms of an enlarging pituitary gland. The 2020 National Comprehensive Cancer Network consensus guidelines recommend holding immunotherapy until symptoms of immune hypophysitis resolve and depending on symptoms, treating with high dose prednisone or methylprednisone if symptomatic and hydrocortisone as replacement glucocorticoid dosing. One more thing to remember when initiating treatment for patients with secondary hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency should be ruled out before treatment to avoid unmasking adrenal insufficiency after thyroid replacement, which can precipitate an adrenal crisis.
1: And what do you suggest are good starting steroid doses for patients with adrenal insufficiency from immune hypophysitis? Ideal
0: choice of glucocorticoid replacement is with hydrocortisone. Dosage and timing of administration is also important. 15 milligrams to 25 milligrams per day in two to three divided doses, with the highest dose in the morning at the time the patient wakes up, and the next dose in the early afternoon or noon and two hours after lunch is what's recommended. Great. And when is prednisone a good choice? Prednisone can be used when there is a concern for ongoing symptoms of underreplacement despite adequate replacement with hydrocortisone, or when compliance is a concern, since prednisone can be dosed once a day. The use of dexamethasone for replacement is discouraged. Also since secondary adrenal insufficiency is a deficiency of ACTH, mineralocorticoid replacement with fludrocortisone is not recommended.
1: That's really helpful, Afreen. How should we treat secondary hypothyroidism from immune hypophysitis?
0: Levothyroxine is the preferred choice of agent for replacing thyroid hormone deficiency. micrograms per kilogram is the daily recommended replacement for thyroid hormone deficiency. Cardiac status, history of arrhythmias, and age should be considered when dosing patients. It is acceptable to start someone at 1 microgram per kilogram per day if there are concerns of effect on other comorbidities. And what about testosterone or estrogen replacement? Gonadal hormone replacement is not indicated acutely. And patients should establish care with an endocrinologist who will consider retesting and weighing risks and benefits for therapy with testosterone or estrogen before considering these.
1: What other hormone deficiencies should we expect from immune hypophysitis? Checkpoint-associated immune hypophysitis can result in
0: pituitary deficiencies ranging from isolated hormone deficiencies to multiple hormone deficiencies. A collection of four longitudinal cohort studies that focused on checkpoint-associated immune hypophysitis concluded that thyrotropin deficiency is the most common endocrinopathy noted. This is followed by corticotropin deficiency and gonadotropin deficiency. Lower prolactin levels are noted more commonly than prolactinemia, which is an increase in prolactin levels. Overall, for the purpose of management and evaluation, anterior pituitary hormone deficiencies are more common than posterior pituitary hormone deficiencies.
1: What is the long-term prognosis of hormone deficiencies arising from immune hypophysitis? This is probably the most common question I get
0: asked by my patients. How long do I have to deal with these medications? Now, combined data from three longitudinal cohort studies of checkpoint induced immune hypophysitis with a median follow-up period ranging from 9.5 weeks to 33.6 weeks showed that corticotropin deficiency remained in 85% patients compared to 45% and 37% in those with thyrotropin and gonadotropin deficiencies. The relevance of this data and clinical practice is pertinent to counseling patients, determining treatment goals, and monitoring parameters. Since most patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency from immune hypophysitis do not recover, it is important to counsel patients regarding the diagnosis, explaining the use of emergency glucocorticoid injection, and educating them about the dosage, timing, and use of higher doses called sick day dosing. These are relevant and important at the time of diagnosis and at every follow up.
1: That's really helpful to know, Efreen. How should we monitor patients for thyroid and gonadal recovery? For thyroid deficiencies, patients should ideally be monitored
0: every three months with a TSH and a free T4, or when they develop signs and symptoms, especially of overreplacements, since this may be the first indication that the axis is recovering. One indication for recovery of the thyroid axis would be an increase in TSH. After replacement with levothyroxine. If the patient has symptoms of overreplacement and TSH is low with a free T4 that is above the normal range, a dosing redu- reduction is indicated until the patient has normal TSH and free T4 levels. After patients are slowly tapered off levothyroxine, TSH and free T4 should be monitored periodically. The Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer Toxicity Management Working Group recommends monitoring every three months for the first year and every six months thereafter to assess for recovery. Similar testing can be done for the gonadal axis as well. Tian, now this was my perspective on immune hypophysitis and what I would recommend, but from an oncologist's point of view, when should immunotherapy be stopped in immune hypophysitis?
1: That's a really great question, Afreen. For mild forms of immune hypophysitis, we would generally continue immunotherapy while giving replacement hormonal therapies. For higher toxicity grades, it's recommended to discontinue the, uh, to discontinue the offending immunotherapy agent and to resume in patients who have resolution of hypophysitis to grade one or less, and also to receive uh, the physiologic doses of prednisone. In one series, patients who had hypophysitis did not have any difference in timing to resolution of hypophysitis, whether they had discontinued the immunotherapy or not. Therefore, in some cases where the malignancy is life-threatening, there may be a conscious decision made together with the patient to re-challenge with the immunotherapy agent once immune hypophysitis symptoms improve to grade one or less. Thanks for that information, team. I think it's going to be very useful for our treating oncologists. I certainly learned a lot about immune hypophysitis today, Efreen, and I hope our audience did as well. In our next episode, we will be taking our discussion to rheumatologic adverse events from immune checkpoint inhibitors and all you need to know about inflammatory arthritis. Remember to tune in again in two weeks. You can reach us at CheckpointNowPodcast at gmail.com. And please also remember to follow us on Twitter at CheckpointNowMD.